Well, it is good to be home. It's good to be here in the auditorium. Uh, like we have been saying time and time again, just blessed to be back, just blessed to have a congregation that values this place as a worship place so that we can come and serve our Lord and give praise to Him. Uh, we started a sermon series about two weeks ago. It's called The Word of the Lord Grows. Even though we're jumping in a little bit later here, it was going on over there. Maybe you remember it. And if you've been worshiping with us, it's that church-wide study called The Word of the Lord Grows. If you haven't had a chance to pick up one of those green books, there is some in the back. It takes you through these lessons that we've been looking at. But really, it's all about diving into God's Word and reading the letters of the New Testament. We've looked at James about two weeks ago. We read the letter of James. We got into it. Last week was Galatians. And this week, we're actually diving into Corinthians, the two letters that Paul wrote to the people of Corinth. And within those two letters, those combined 29 chapters, we see Paul write very famous chapters. If you had to guess, what do you think is the most famous from Corinthians? I'll give you a hint. It was probably read at your wedding. Hands up if you got the love chapter. Nice. All right. There's other ones about resurrection and life. There's the chapters on the uh, spiritual gifts that we all have, the body of Christ. But there's also Paul correcting issues of divisions in the church. Morality, litigation, the Lord's Supper, some of the false teachings that had popped up among other issues in Corinthians. And there's a lot in these two letters. And I think that you'll find as you're going through reading it, that there is something for you to take away. And I hope that you'll approach it, that there is more than a goal just to read the letters. There's more than just a goal to read the Bible. The goal, the real goal, is to live the Bible, to live what you are reading, to live that gospel. And today, we're just going to take a look at a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and when you do the study, you'll, you'll get a lot of the background from Pastor Tim who wrote this lesson. It's absolutely fantastic. And we're going to jump in right at chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians where Paul is speaking about the power of the gospel in the midst of trials and suffering. So if you brought your Bibles with you, you can pull them out. I'm looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 7. No, the verses will be behind me, of course, and they're also in your bulletin. But let's take a look at this first one. This is the Apostle Paul writing here. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now let's break down this metaphor that Paul is using here. The treasure that Paul is referring to is the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God made evident through that gospel. It is the very light of God and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, all reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to save. It's not just about the forgiveness of sins, but the power to be reborn, the power to be made new. And the jars of clay, well, that's you and me. But when Paul considers or calls us jars of clay, he isn't expressing that there isn't any worth in these jars of clay or that the body is just a, a thing that the, the eternal soul lives in. Instead, Paul is marveling here that the creator, the redeemer, the sanctifier, the, the triune God has chosen to dwell in humans, that the eternal would dwell in the finite that God chose to do this and that God is finding joy 
in putting this all-surpassing power within us. And by, by calling us jars of clay, Paul answers the question of who could be given this gospel, who could have this power that moves you from life to death, the power to be saved, who is worthy to be a jar for God's light, for God's glory. And the answer is that the smartest person isn't smart enough, the most spiritual person isn't spiritual enough, the most pure person isn't pure enough, and the most talented person isn't talented enough to do this on their own. And yet all, all people can receive this glory, this treasure, this power. Because Paul says we are all equal clay pots holding an unspeakably great and all-surpassing gift from God. We are all found to be the same in God's eye. And why would he do that? Why would he put this, this power in such fragile things, such things when there are seven billion of them? So that those who see who see the power, who see the light shining forth, that it would be evident that that light, that that power is not because of who that person is, but because of what God has done for them. That's what we talked about in Galatians last week, right, when Pastor Tim broke that down. But this jar of clay, this description, isn't unique to just here in 2 Corinthians. Do you ever hear the story of Gideon? Do you remember Gideon? Gideon was, um, he was like the smallest member of the littlest tribe of the least important people in all of Israel. And the angel come down and says, God is choosing you to go be the warrior who's going to defeat these Midianites. And Gideon, instead of being like, woo, finally my moment, says, I don't think so. I'm going to need some sort of sign. Do you remember the sign? He takes that fleece, he lays it out on the grass, and he says, I'll tell you what, if when I wake up in the morning, the grass is all wet, but the fleece is dry, we're good. I will believe what you are telling me. Wakes up, it happens that way. Angel says, are you ready to go? He says, you know what? What if it was an accident? These things happen. I mean, how many times have you laid your coat out to dry, all the ground is wet, and the coat's every day almost, right? So he says, let's do it the opposite way. I want it the opposite. Next morning, wakes up, done the opposite way. Looks at the angel and he goes, okay, fine. I guess I'll do this, but if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to get the most strongest, baddest army of all time. And he goes around rounding these people up, and God says, you get 300 guys. And he's like, what? To take on the Midianites, this gigantic force? He says, yeah, you get 300. And he goes, okay. So he starts, you know, picking the good-looking guys like myself, the strongest ones like myself, things like that. And then God comes down and says, nope, you don't get those guys. He's like, well, who do I get? Have everybody go down to the river and drink. You get the ones who put their face in the water and lap like dogs. They are not the smartest tools in the shed. Yet these are the ones that God says, you get these men. So then he goes, great, okay. Uh, we're going to have to have a really good strategy. And that night, this guy gets a dream. And in the dream, he says, fill some jars with a torch, grab a trumpet, surround the army, and God will give them to you. And he's like, What? I'm going to fill a clay pot with a torch and have a trumpet. What about my sword? What about all that stuff? He's like, just go and do it. He doesn't argue. He goes and does it. They get there. They take the pots. It's the middle of the night. They smash them. They grab the lanterns. They're holding up that light. And they blow their horns. And the Midianites turn on themselves and start destroying themselves. And they win. It wasn't even the guys that he called to do any fighting. It's always God. Now, I tell you that not just because I want you to get a little Old Testament sprinkled in today, and not just because the story contained jars of clay like what we're looking at here, but because of how the jars were broken, crashed, 
cracked and shattered so that the light could shine through because that was the purpose of the jars in that moment. And this is fascinating because if you take one more step back and you go to the beginning of Genesis in chapter 2, God reaches down from the dust. Clay? No, it says dust. But clay is pretty close here if you're with me. And then he breathes life into us. And then what does it say? He makes man and woman in his own image. Which means that every person that you have ever met is made in the image of God. Whether they are good or bad, young or old, no matter their, their race, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, their gender, it doesn't matter. Any person you meet, all of our relationships with other beings are with someone who has been made in the image of God. And C.S. Lewis, the Narnia guy, but he wrote some other pretty good books on Christianity, explains this, that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to just a mere mortal. Nations, uh, civilizations, art, culture, that's mortal. It will all pass away. But it was immortals that you joke with, that you work with, that you are married to. It's an immortal person that you sometimes snub or exploit or that you pass by, that you don't treat like someone who was made in God's image. Or maybe even worse, it's immortals that we allow to be exploited or treated in a way that violates who they truly are. Because every single person is made in God's image. Today, you sit next to someone who is made out of dust, and yet someone who is made in the image of God himself. And how God does that isn't even the biggest mystery. Nor is it about how the triune God called you by name, nor is it about how God is all-powerful or all-omniscient or, or, or everywhere. The greatest mystery is that God is love. Not that he loves, but that God is love. The deepest, central identity of God is that he is love, that he died so that we could live. That in love, each one of us is chosen, called his child, forgiven, and made whole. And if God is love, if his deepest identity is love, and you are made in his image, in his likeness, even though you are dust, just a jar of clay, well, then that means that your deepest identity is love, loved by God in Christ Jesus. Your deepest identity is love. And it's not just enough to know love, but to then actually love because clay jar that you are, your purpose, your identity is to love. You have been given the all-surpassing power to do that, to let the light of Jesus Christ shine by speaking of him and loving in his name. Which I know was like seven minutes just to explain a metaphor, but I guess it leads us to this question. If that is our purpose, to love and to speak Jesus, then why is it so difficult? Maybe because it's just so hard. Look at this verse 8, 9, 10, and 11 and 12. We are hard-pressed on every side, not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. We carry around in our body always 
the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed. For we are those who are alive, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Hard-pressed has the idea of hunted. Paul was a wanted, hunted man because of what he had done and was doing for Jesus. Acts 23, 40 people take a vow not to eat or sleep until they have murdered Paul. And it can feel like that for us too. Not that there's 40 people out there fasting until they kill us, but the idea that we are being hunted. Maybe hunted by pain, hunted by guilt, hunted by a memory, hunted by people who seem to always be trying to catch us doing wrong. You see that word perplexed, just turn on your TV or your news feed, you'll find yourself perplexed with what the heck is going on. And that always leads to what? Feeling stressed, never understanding, just constantly perplexed, asking why, being filled with anxious, shot, having anxious thoughts, having a mind of worry. See that word persecuted, constantly being asked for more, constantly having one more thing happen. Constant raising prices and no raise. Constantly being mistreated or judged, oppressed, harassed, just for being you. Struck down, you see that word? Beat down at work? Beat down at home? Beat down and just so tired of everything. Asking, when is this going to end? Because each time you think something good is about to happen, you just get sick. Or some unexpected trouble. I've read this passage over 50 times this week, and it looks like these words are bolded to me. And I can hear them hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And I have this initial urge to do whatever I can to not be those things. I do not want to be hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. I want to avoid those things. I want to just be safe. Do you ever feel that? You want to just be safe. Because we live in a society that does everything that it can to be safe. It's interesting, our preoccupation with being safe, how much time and energy and money is spent to being safe, how we try to craft our whole lives around the idea of needing to be safe. And maybe that isn't inherently wrong. Where does it stop? Because being safe is not just avoiding danger, an even more disastrous or, or uh, devastating translation of that term, being safe, doesn't mean you just avoid danger. It means that sometimes you avoid being dangerous. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to get involved. I don't have to do the right thing. I just have to do the thing that doesn't get me in trouble. Sometimes being safe means keeping your kids safe, right? Protecting them. And there's a healthy way to do that. But also sometimes we take that to the extreme and suddenly we are making kids that are harmless, making them nice, controlled, not willing to take risks. And I wonder if that's what we think it means to be a good Christian. To be a good Christian is to just be safe, to be safe and nice. That is our goal as Christians, harmless and safe. Jesus says what? He's sending us out as sheep among wolves. And it's okay, right? We agree with you, Jesus. We'll be sheep. I'm going to be mild and I'm just going to take it. Just take whatever comes my way. 
I'm not going to stand for anything. I'm not going to speak out. I'm just going to be the safe sheep. After all, Jesus, you were the Lamb of God. Didn't you allow yourself to be arrested, to be beaten, to die? But Jesus being the Lamb of God does not mean in any way, shape, or form that he is cuddly or safe or tame or nice or harmless. Jesus, the Lamb of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, means he is the one who sacrifices himself, gives everything of himself. He is the Lamb of sacrifice. The Lamb is courageous, and the Lamb is dangerous. Jesus said what? They're going to hate me and kill me because of what I am doing. And that's what's going to happen. I am the lamb who is going to choose to lay down my life for the very people who are trying to harm me and kill me. Choosing to lay that down. And then he says, if they hate me and I didn't stop, if they didn't make it safe for me and I didn't stop, then they are for sure going to hate you and they are going to persecute you. And it's not going to be safe. But that must not stop you either. It cannot stop us just because it is hard. Because there are two critical... We have a job to do. We have a task, we have a role to play in this identity that each one of us has been given. The Christians that Paul is writing to, they turned the world upside down. They destroyed the status quo. They were willing to be hated and crushed and persecuted because of the job that they had to do, which was to tell of the love of Jesus, and we do too. What if, in the midst of a world that is continually pressing us and perplexing us and persecuting us and striking us, we had a hope within us that could endure, that we could have joy, that we could find ourselves still rejoicing. What if in all the chaos we had a peace that even when the future is not certain, we have this peace that passes all understanding? What if we had a faith that was forged in the midst of the adversities and the trials and the sufferings that come our way? What if we could love in spite of it not being safe to do so? What if we could see not with our eyes, but in faith, trust in the promises and rely on the power of Jesus' name? What would it look like to step out into that faith? What would it look like for you to shine the light of Jesus even when it's dark and not safe? To call out the wrong, to step in, to move away from the safety of finances and to live generously, to move away from the, the me time and find a place to serve and to get involved, to become a person living the ways of Jesus, not a person who is trying to find a way to get more things to raise children in faith and love and courage and instilling in them the values of following Jesus, not the values of finding success or image or perfection or the D1 scholarship. We, in this room, have the job to be light even in our weakness and not a mentality that says, I'll get around to it when it's convenient, but the purpose, the reason you get up in the morning 
And that job, that task that you have cannot be separated from the identity that we witnessed being born today. The critical reality that you, jar of clay, matter to God. You have to know that. You have to believe that, that you matter to God. And in the midst of being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, the critical reality is that you matter to God. And He has promised to fill you, to fill your cup, to give you what you need. He has promised that you are stronger than you know because you have an all-surpassing power within you. He has promised that He loves you and will make you whole in spite of all the cracks, and He will pick up those pieces, that He will not leave you in those moments of being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, or struck down because He chose you and doesn't lose you. And He says, hear my voice. My child, you are hard-pressed, but you are not crushed. My child, you are perplexed, but despair is not what you have. Instead, it will be my peace. My child, when you are persecuted, I will not forsake you nor leave you. My child, they may try to strike you down, but you will not be destroyed. And as the band gets right back up here to jam like we haven't jammed in a while, hear me when I say that the all-surpassing power of Jesus' death and resurrection in our lives is that in all situations, we have the power and the victory of Jesus to meet our needs. That's not theory, friends. That is lived truth. And that's why we say in verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on what is experienced, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal, because the promises of Jesus are forever to you. And that is why we live out those realities, to love in his name and to be known by him. For to have the life and the death of Jesus carried in your body means that it is okay to be broken because you have been made whole. You have cracks so the light of Jesus may shine through. Death and new life, death and resurrection is never safe. But to those of us who are reborn, who are alive in Christ, we have come to know this truth, that we may be jars of clay, but we have the power that comes from the name of Jesus. The all-surpassing power is what we have received. And that power brings life out of death, carries hope, carries healing through all of our troubles. We have the name and the person of Jesus who gave himself for us. Let us live in love for him and forever speak his name. Amen.